Welcome to Advice Worth Keeping. Today we're bringing you a special episode that spotlights risk and compliance topics through conversations hosted between KPMG partners and business leaders. One of our partners, Karen Vanya, recently had a chance to connect with leaders from three major healthcare organizations, HCA Healthcare, Mount Sinai Healthcare System, and the Mayo Clinic. Listen in as they discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on their organizations and their risk functions. Karen, over to you. Hi, I'm your host, Karen Vanya. I'm a partner at KPMG and the National Healthcare Leader for Risk Advisory Solutions. Today, our podcast will explore the impact of COVID-19 on three major healthcare organizations, their risk functions, some lessons learned so far, and their plans for a path forward. Before we got started, I asked each of our panelists today if they had set any personal goals during this work from home timeframe and how they're doing against those goals. For me, I know that was with an extra effort towards working out and my physical fitness, been trying to be very successful with that and work from home has actually helped a ton and actually getting out into my flower gardens a little bit more. So that's me, but let me introduce you to my guests. First, we have Kim Adi. After 18 years at Mayo Clinic, she serves as the Chief Risk Officer. So welcome, Kim. Thank you. Kim, can you share with us the scope of your responsibilities and if you've set any of those personal goals? Glad to be here. I am, as Karen said, the Chief Risk Officer, and in the scope of the risk umbrella is what we like to call it, we have compliance, audit, enterprise risk management, investigations, and global security. So really working to coordinate and collaborate those efforts around a holistic risk function. Personally, during this COVID time, lots of self-reflection, but really working on my tennis serve. That's great. Thanks, Kim. So our second guest is Phil Billington. After 15 years at HCA Healthcare, Phil serves as the Senior Vice President of Internal Audit. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm the head of internal audit and enterprise risk and business continuity planning at HCA. We have a team of about 150 people that work to ensure that we've mitigated risk as much as possible. On a personal note, I think when this all happened, my goal was to get closer to my family. I'm not sure I have achieved that, but I'm sure my wife has. I have three boys and they have been home throughout this. I have been at work throughout this. I'm happy to say that my wife and three boys are much closer. That's wonderful. We've definitely heard a lot of stories like that through this time frame. So our third guest is Frank Sino. Frank has 19 years with Mount Sinai Health System and currently serves as the Senior Vice President, Chief Risk Officer, and Chief Compliance Officer. Welcome, Frank. Thanks so much for having me at Mount Sinai. I lead the internal audit function the compliance function, environmental health and safety, as well as enterprise risk management. And as far as a personal goal during the crisis, for the first few weeks when New York was on lockdown, I was at home and it was during a time when a lot of my family members didn't want to be around me because I was still coming into the city. So they hunkered down at other family members' homes, some out of state. So I had an opportunity I guess, of isolation, but I really tried to focus on fitness for about three solid weeks. So it was an interesting experience. 
Well, I think just talking about some of your personal experiences going through this really demonstrates the significant difference in the type of crisis many organizations went through at this time. Share with our audience a little bit about what has this crisis meant to your organization. And Frank, obviously, as you just mentioned, being in the heart of New York and what New York went through, can you start? Sure, I'd be happy to. As you can imagine, this was an extraordinary experience, especially coming into Manhattan during the height of the crisis. I'm so impressed by the providers, all the nurses and doctors at Mount Sinai and what they did to care for our patients. It was truly heroic. From my perspective, and again, I hope it was a once in a lifetime experience, coming into Manhattan when New York was entirely closed, driving through the Lincoln Tunnel, where you typically saw thousands and tens of thousands of people in cars there was no one on the streets and probably about every 10 blocks there was a police cruiser with its lights flashing it was kind of a day after scenario so i'll i'll always remember that well i think that actually just gave me chills just hearing you share that story so thank you very much Phil, let's go to you. HCA has obviously got operations across the country, so share with us a little bit of what the crisis was like for your organization. Yeah, it's not a tale of two cities, but a tale of 43 cities. We've got 43 different markets, and each one of those markets was impacted and continues to be impacted differently. And the hardest part about that is that it changes on a day-to-day basis, so constantly monitoring All that activity has been exhausting, I think, for the corporate team, but not nearly as exhausting as what Frank is talking about. The service line folks there at the hospitals, they are the heroes throughout this effort, and they continue to shine and have inspired the entire organization, really, throughout this entire effort and continued to do that. I don't think we expected the resurgence to happen so fast. I think we had counted on it coming back in the fall. So when it came back in a big way in June, our ICUs in many markets have become very crowded, very different from the April and March surge when all elective surgeries were canceled. Uh, We had hospitals that were literally empty in March, and we had hospitals who were overflowing in March, depending on the city. And today, it's different, but still very urgent, and those heroes keep doing it every day. Absolutely. So, Kim, give us your thoughts as well. Mayo is obviously one of the uh, specialty locations across the country. Yeah, I'll answer briefly. You know, we're in three markets, so a health system in the Midwest, primarily Minnesota and Wisconsin, and then Florida and Arizona. And I think this is one of the silver linings long term is for all of kind of administrative shared services who have been redeployed, to support and more closely and palpably see and feel and see with the practice is that has actually been an incredible experience and kind of mission-inducing um, good side of this crisis. But we have not endured anything like some of the New York sites. Our crisis is a little different ilk. It really has been an incredible amount of preparation And then, you know, we're probably at some of our highest rates right now of ICU and patient volume in Florida and Arizona right now. To me, it feels like it is increasingly turning to a marathon, which is a little different than the crisis of a sprint. I think we have a marathon. That's a little bit more how it's feeling to me. 
I think that's how a lot of us feel today versus maybe even two months ago, is we're all feeling like this is going to be a much longer time frame to continue to work through. And it obviously has a lot to do with how we react to it and how we lead our teams. So maybe let's turn a little bit to your teams and your risk organizations. Maybe share with us how COVID has changed the way your team supports Mayo and maybe even whether or not there's additional things that you've needed to do to ensure the value your organization brings to the clinic. I think for all of us, this was just very different than the usual annual plan, quarterly priorities, and march to produce timelines and deliverables. Everything kind of went out the door. And my goal was to figure out how our teams in our original functions and in an agile way, in whatever way was needed by the practice, could be relevant. So we redeployed to COVID-related priorities and now increasingly what we call CARES priorities, so with the recovery dollars. So we really redeployed in the first phase to help the practice. We stood up the door screening and visitor process. Our audit team reviewed and stood up management of scrubs, which became a sudden crisis when they started fleeing out the doors. So really trying to figure out how to be relevant with a wholly new or basically giving up on the annual plan for the time being. A little bit bigger picture in response to the financial implications of this, I think we were all asked to absolutely pause growth, decrease budgets. So spent a lot of time recalibrating priorities, projects that were underway, figuring out what we in the risk function, like other shared services, could deliver in terms of budget savings. So we, just like IT and HR and everybody else, needed to deliver a budget saving. I've spent a lot of time thinking and advocating for how you fairly and in good faith do that, and yet at the same time, don't long-term undermine the organization and really pause projects, pause priorities, at the same time arguing very strongly that's different than permanently pending. I suspect all of us are really struggling with the savings organizations have felt during the pause. Every good CFO and CEO would like to change into permanent savings. That's really where I see a lot of the energy going to earn those back and maintain the relevancy and credibility and priorities of the risk function. Kind of a broad answer, but that's where I've been spending time and strategy. No, that's really helpful. Frank, what are some of your thoughts on that topic? Well, I agree with my colleague, and I imagine we all have pretty similar experiences. The first thing I challenged myself about, and I think we all, I'm going to expect my colleagues and I worry about the same thing, to some degree on an ongoing basis, but I think with COVID in particular, And that is, how do we provide real value? How is our work extremely relevant? And I think it was an opportunity to demonstrate that. And I agree with the comments that were just provided that the first thing we did was pause. It wasn't a time to interact, obviously, with our physicians and some of our leaders as we typically would with some of our methodologies. So we paused that and we shifted to initially what we called a crisis surveillance mode. And we put together a surveillance dashboard of billing compliance metrics, helpline activity and the COVID activity that was coming through. And some of it was very problematic, as you can imagine. We shifted to emphasizing more on some of our software tools for monitoring prescription drug activity, as well as diversion 
at Mount Sinai, as the crisis evolved, offered to our employee base about 6,000 employees participation, a benefit to participate in the New York State Shared Work Program, where Mount Sinai, an entity, can save employee dollars. So you could put an employee at 80% or 60% activity, so you'd have that savings immediately, preserve the employee's status, preserve the job, maintain benefits. In addition, the employee could also take advantage of the federal benefit. We were able to have employees make more money and have a tremendous cost savings to Mount Sinai. But at the same time, we put 6,000 employees into this. So we focused on a continuous surveillance and auditing model of that program to make sure that anything inappropriate was going on. And I think finally, more non-traditional for what we all do, but during the most difficult times, we were focused on respirator fit testing for N95s. The supply availability for N95 respirators was changing on almost a daily basis. I remember being here one Friday night and learning that two of our hospitals were about a day away from running out of one type of respirator. We were waiting for other shipments to come in, so what we needed to do was mobilize. Very non-traditional for, I think, audit, compliance, and enterprise risk management teams. But in my mind, it was an opportunity to pivot, and I challenged myself to try to focus on things that were really relevant to the business. Absolutely. I mean, it clearly appears that internal audit was leveraged as a bit of a triage. So, Phil, maybe give us some of your perspectives on this disruption and, and what has it meant to the way in which you know, your team support HCA. Sure. And very similar to my colleagues' experiences, we had to pivot for a period of time on areas that had a direct impact on clinical sites, physician practices, ASCs, hospital sites, primarily hospitals. We shifted some of those resources, whether they be compliance resources or financial resources, to assist directly in those initial response efforts and really moved from that third line of defense down into that first line of defense in many of these areas, similar to the stories you just heard. Since then, we've rebooted testing in those areas. And because we had to pause on some of that third line of defense test work, at the end of the day, we may not get as much coverage for the 2020 year, but I think the word relevant that both of my colleagues used will be stated many, many times about internal audit in the year 2020 because they saw us roll up our sleeves, jump in, do what it took to get the job done at the right time. And now as we reboot in these areas, we just need to make sure that we're prioritizing the work and reviewing the highest risk areas to continue to maintain an adequate coverage. But there's going to be some low-risk areas that just are not going to get coverage in that period of time for 2020. And as the company adjusts its goals and strategic objectives on a go-forward basis, that has a direct impact on where we are spending our time, especially in the data analytics and IT space you would ask me, Phil, what are you not getting done, you know, in 2020 that you really wanted to get done? It's some things in that data analytics space that we had a big game plan on RPA and some additional data analytics projects that I've shifted gears. I'm now validating many of the data analytics tools around COVID 
that are being developed by the company and really walking alongside the company on a day-to-day basis, not waiting for the company to do it and then validate it, but literally real-time validation. And that means I'm going to push some of my internal IA projects on the back burner to make sure that we get all this done. With all of this change that you all just described, how do you continue to influence your organizations as a risk function, right? Has there been any impacts to how you drive that accountability that, you know, as risk we're always looking for? And maybe, Phil, I'll just stay with you. Yeah, I I think it comes down to communication and still maintaining those direct relationships that you always had face-to-face but you still have to maintain those relationships. I'm lucky because I am on site along with the other senior officers in the company, so I am mask-to-mask, I guess I'll say, these days with those leaders. But the leaders in the field, when we're in 21 states across the country, those are the leaders that I really need to make sure that I'm staying in touch with as well, whether it's through a Zoom-type WebEx environment or a simple email, hey, how you doing, and making sure that that they know we're still here and reaching out. Maintaining those relationships gets much more difficult in this environment. I have a lot of young people that work in our group. Average age is probably in the high 20s and love them to death. They are awesome, hardworking, but they are very much focused on using technology, and and I have to be very careful about that and making sure that they are maintaining those relationships. They may not be sitting across the table anymore, if that makes sense. I probably should ask each of you to share as well, for your risk organization, are your teams still working remotely at this point in time, or are you guys partially? What's the current state of your team, Phil? Like I said, I've got about 150 people. I've got about 25% of those people back in the corporate offices. We rarely travel to our clinical sites, only if it's an urgent need that's related to the response effort or a critical need. For example, I don't mind putting people on planes if we're chasing PPE and need to go validate some PPE. We've done that on a number of occasions. And we'll do anything if it supports the hospitals and we'll go anywhere, but it needs to be essential travel. Kim, what's going on in Mayo Clinic, both from a work from home as well as if you have any thoughts around my question about influence and accountability? We are now largely, for the first time, going to be working remotely, and that's a pretty big change. My 220 people or so in the risk functions have generally been in person in Rochester or at our sites, and Mayo is an extraordinarily in-person relationship-based culture. Definitely leadership is going to appropriately use this to jumpstart a change that I think we intended to make over three years or so in terms of remote working, use of technology. I think it's good. I think it moves us in the big picture in the right direction. For functions like compliance and risk and influence on behavior and relationships, I think it's going to be really hard because we're going to have to evolve that with evolving the very base culture. A lot of change management, a lot of discussion with my groups, a lot of worry about how do we influence remotely in the same way we used to. And then how do you, and we all have this issue, but again, every corporation who has figured out how to have remote teams has this. How do you make sure your employees still feel that literally spiritual link to the mission? 
So I know I was just on a long phone call this morning. You know, I'm used to going in every morning, walking through the lobby, quite literally seeing, hearing, feeling that patient's context that is incredibly motivating. I miss that incredibly. We have some, you know, cross-disciplinary groups, and I'm volunteered and absolutely am on the one to say, how do we make sure we maintain that spiritual link to the mission and quite literally the patient with all of us working at home? Because I, I think many of us are grieving a change in that. You know, that being said, again, I recognize for growth, for financial reasons, frankly, for retention and recruitment of the next generation who kind of looks at us when we interview them and say, no, you you have to move to Rochester. (laughs) That has become increasingly unpopular in recruitment. The other thing I would mention with influence, which I am sure we're all exploiting, too, is anytime never let a good crisis go to waste. Every time there's a crisis, it cracks the door open for opportunity. So I also really see some opportunity to influence our organizations in areas like business continuity. That's within scope for the risk area. And I think there's a great opportunity from our learning to move that function forward. OIS, information security. I think this is increasingly, and I expect in the coming year, will even more expose some of the gaps we all have in information security that require more attention and dollars. You know, if a year ago I had tried to get time on an agenda to spend any significant amount of time doing kind of a black swan exercise about a pandemic, I don't think I would have been successful in that probably. I think it will open the door for some broader ERM type discussions around the less likely but more high impact risks as well as the broader context risks like geopolitical, financial. You know, we all kind of have that in the context, but sometimes it's been difficult to get it relevant enough to be expressly on the table in a good ERM philosophical discussion. I think this might help us also be ready for more of those discussions. Lots of bad things, but some some silver linings too. I think you're absolutely right about that last point. While it probably still needs to be set at the level appropriate within ERM, it's definitely going to get a lot more discussions than it ever has in the past. So Frank, to turn it back to you, both I'll say on these topics around influence, where are your teams at today? Are are you primarily work from home? Clearly, the teams that have been helping in this triage manner are probably doing a lot of different things. Great comments from Kim and Phil, and Kim used the word grieving. So we went to work from home fairly early in March. I'm at our 42nd Street headquarters right now. I'm looking out on our location where we usually have 50 team members and there's nobody here. So that's really unusual. Obviously, we're working from home. I think that was the first challenge we all dealt with and we were able to navigate it. Some of us, I think, were kind of surprised. But what Kim and Phil said, I'd really like to echo, I think the success of our groups is built upon building relationships and building trust with leaders. And while we were all, I think, very much able to navigate it during the last several months, I think it's gonna be important to maintain that. That might be something that I and some of my leaders may need to focus more on. And I guess I'm grateful that we built some of that trust in the past, but I hope there are opportunities and I'm optimistic there will be 
in the future. As far as what the workforce will look like, we're starting to think about what the workforce of the future will be at Mount Sinai. Again, I'm looking out on a floor, and in our corporate headquarters, we usually have over 2,000 people. And on every, any given day when I come in to New York, there are probably five to 10 people on all of our floors. So I think it's going to look different in the future. I think we're planning for that. We're trying to anticipate what the appropriate footprint would look like, what are the controls we'll need from compliance, legal, information security, and asset perspectives as we think about what our workforce of the future will look like. And as far as trying to stay relevant, we continued to have, and I wanted to make sure we did have, audit committee meetings throughout the crisis. Of course, they were on Zoom, which was a different platform for us and our trustees. And some of the regular leadership meetings that we staffed, I wanted to make sure we still had those because it would have been easy and I think everybody would have accepted just postponing. I think it was Kim that said, a good crisis presents great opportunities. And I agree with that. So I, I think it was an opportunity really to immediately pivot. I forced myself to ask, what are they going to want to hear about? They're not going to want to hear about a T&E audit. They're going to want to hear about the business and the challenges we're going through now and what are we doing to address that. So that's what we tried to do to make sure we stayed relevant. You know, you touched on the concept of restarting and what's the role, what's the new workforce going to look like, if you will. You know, we've been using the words of a restarting America or restarting our teams, but I think it's going to feel and look a little different than maybe we even thought it was going to be. So maybe talk a little bit about what is your team, your organization's role in restarting efforts for your whole organization? As far as restarting, we're embracing as an enterprise risk management initiative what a permanent workforce might look like and which employees and which groups of employees might be the most appropriate candidates, what is the appropriate asset mix that we might need to provide and at what price point, and what other policies and procedures and security protocols may need to be in place as we go forward. So that's an initiative that is emerging through enterprise risk management. And as far as reopening our offsite locations, we were asked to develop a virtual clinical assessment tool before we re-engaged at some of those facilities and began to have our providers go out to those facilities again in order to assess if the facility met our standards, if there was appropriate messaging, social distancing, staggering of patients, appropriate PP&E. So we took on the role of being a virtual gatekeeper to reopen those practices, and some of that is still ongoing. So I understand that part of your responsibilities right now is to include the non-clinical areas of HCA around the restarting efforts. Maybe share with us a little bit of what you've seen from that experience. Yeah, somehow I got put in charge of the non-clinical site reboot strategies. So it's it's gone well. It's been a journey. It's been a lot of help from all the other senior officers at HCA and many, many hours of working with all aspects of leaders in the company to try to design a safe way to do this and work and listen closely to the clinicians, let them drive the process. 
watch the data very closely, be nimble, communicate, 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 you can never over communicate in some of these things. And so we're still not through it. And we've developed a lot of guidelines and worked with a lot of other companies, both inside and outside healthcare, and tried to adjust the guidance appropriately. Lots of work, great work from our human resources area with NHCA to help drive many of these things. And we'll continue to have to adjust and monitor as more and more is learned about COVID. Institutionally, I would echo some of those same things, although our clinical leadership is doing more of the clinic-related. I would say one practice that I really like is we've got one committee in governance structure figuring out how to get going again and have revenue come in. And then we have a different structure looking at safety and quality. I really like that structure from a potential conflict perspective. So again, not really within the ambit of what I am accountable for, but very much a good practice, I think, for managing risk. So let's turn our conversation a little bit more towards what we're doing now and, and expecting to need to do in the future. You know, what's going to change some of our focus areas? And you guys have commented on some of them already. Anything else that you would want to share with our audience around focus areas going forward? Yeah, a couple thoughts. Where I see it's going right now, assuming there's not immediate crises again, which I think is a continuing variable, but really having to unpause our plan and priorities, having to re-argue for project dollars and priorities. I, I see, at least in our organization, and I suspect many, a desire to try to retain the savings. And then I can see us in the immediate, probably one to three years, having to really add a new priority, which is to the extent we have all earned and keep any of the CARES dollars or some of the relief dollars, there will be a significant amount of time and effort necessary to appropriately document, defend, respond to anticipated audits on those. So I would note that in particular, my internal audit group, we're going to need to add in a significant portion of resource to working with finance to prepare documentation and audit readiness on CARES dollars, CARES and or FEMA, a lot of dollars to help address costs and in our case more lost revenue because even though we didn't have some of the waves of actual patients we pended surgeries also so to the extent that continues through the year and folks keep those dollars the fraud potential is huge in this area and therefore the audit responses i think will be significant to be ready for those so that's where i see us pivoting now in the next wave we recently had an audit committee meeting, and I asked my team to uh, remind the trustees that we've activated our full program again. So I think that's important for people to know. We did shift gears for a couple of months, but we're back to doing and executing our program the way we have in the past. Telehealth has increased dramatically in our business, and I think it's going to be something that is a new component of the way we deliver healthcare. We've developed an ongoing surveillance education program on telehealth. As I mentioned, we're focusing more on what a permanent work from home workforce or component of the workforce might look like. And we're getting back into some of our construction activities and some of the oversight and monitoring that we do with those activities that obviously were put on hold over the last couple of months. Bill, what's some of your thoughts? 
Well, I, I definitely agree on the CARES Act processes and coordination, the telehealth, totally agree. I think the risks associated with the business going work from home as well and understanding what are the impacts that that will have on the various processes on a go-forward basis. I think that's going to be critical as we think through things. And I think the thing that company probably learned the most throughout this process over the past three to four months, I think in the company, many times we have said in the past that perfect is the enemy of good, meaning you know, let's not boil the ocean. Let's not be perfect. Let's just try to get things done. And we said that a lot, but we didn't do it. We grinded on projects and things that could have been done faster, just drug for months, if not years. But when this broke back in February, the company prioritized speed over perfection. And I think the internal audit team had to learn to do that as well. And through that, we were able to accomplish, we not just internal audit, but as a company, we were able to accomplish things in an extremely short period of time, very quickly. And was it perfect? No, but it was good enough. And it was a good job, well done. We adjusted later if we needed to along the way. But knowing that that's going to be the company's approach, perhaps going forward, what does that mean to my risk environment? You know, I like things to be perfect. As an auditor, I know they will not be. And if the company prioritizes speed over perfection, I need to realize that. I need to adapt to that as well. I would reiterate really what you said, Phil. I think we saw as a corporate culture during this time the ability to make decisions faster, empower individuals. From a risk perspective, it really moves the needle on the risk appetite, the risk culture, which is an opportunity. Now, it introduces difference and perhaps more risk from a compliance and audit perspective. From an ERM perspective, I think it's a welcome opening Mm -hmm. for some express discussions and movement of the needle on risk culture. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. What I was going to add there as well is that someone told me once was when you have extreme focus, the number of things that you can get done quickly. And I think this crisis has created extreme focus in certain topics for all of our organizations. And it has truly been a positive change coming out of it. I'm going to close things out here. One of the things that I wanted each of you to share is any lessons learned or advice that you would like to share with other risk leaders that you've already learned so far in this time of crisis. I think one of the things that I would share is to have an active program, to realize how quickly that you can change. My only advice or the thing I'd like to share that I think I learned through this was you can be something different, you can be something better, and you really can change. I think it helps us deliver value better to the organization. Mine will be very simple, and I think things that other people have said many times throughout this process, you literally cannot communicate enough with your people and with your clients The more you communicate, the better you will be. I think the other thing is stay nimble, adjust, don't stick to the plan because Mike Tyson would say you're going to get punched in the nose and you better be able to adjust and change with the times, change with the circumstances. I think those two factors will be necessary for the marathon, as Kim says. 
I will continue to look and accommodate any link to the practice that I can have for my team. To have them understand and gain relationships and credibility and relevance to our practice very directly, I will look for hybrids. I will look for opportunities. I will look for opportunities for risk people to go work in the practice and in turn practice leaders to come work in risk. That has been invaluable. I have learned I need to be more flexible, so I have worked at a very conservative organization, gone in in my little suit and heels every day for 18 years. I need to learn to be more flexible in terms of when there's a Zoom meeting. While I really don't want to see the baseball cap on backwards, I probably don't need to see a tie. Trying to be more flexible. And then finally, really have learned to get comfortable with saying, when you don't know, say, I don't know. There has been so much of that these past months. Your audience so wants to hear facts on exactly what month I'll be coming back to my office to at least clean out my drawer. I I can't tell you. I don't know. I don't know when I will know, and here's why I don't know. That's such a hard message, but at least it's the truth. (laughs) So being really willing to say I don't know, I have learned to do that. As leaders, that's hard to do. Thank you all for sharing your experiences and insights, and most of all for your participation today. For more information about our panelists, please see the landing page on the KPMG portal. For additional information on COVID-19 and our response, please see kpmg.com.